Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a rainy day here in the capital is Nigel Matthews. Nigel is the CEO at GamesQuest, a company which stocks 30,000 of the world's favourite board games, toys and role-playing books. Matthews has been at the helm of GamesQuest since 2014. Uh, Nigel, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Yeah, my pleasure, Scott. And it's not raining here, the sun is shining, so uh, I've got some advantage over you. Sorry it's raining in your in your world. Yes, it is. Um, it's, um, it started all right, uh, sort of a partially cloudy morning, and it slowly deteriorated over the course of the day. So let's hope it does pick up uh, by the time I have to uh, leave the uh, the premises, as it were. <laughs> um, anyway, um, it's, um, it might not be the nicest day for it, but we're, we're inside yeah. and we're, uh, we're recording, so that's, um, that's all absolutely fine. So certainly not being dripped on, as it were. Normally, um, at this point in the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership and bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation i think we can start by approaching it from that angle um because it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life this pandemic but for you and your business just to what extent has it affected your operations oh um massive um without any shadow of a doubt i think that um you know in any organization you face um you face challenges um week in week out of which um most are surmountable, but um, you know when 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 the announcements you know came um, about obviously shutting down and the uncertainty and the worries and the concerns and you know the look on your staff and and um, you know, faces and their concerns and worries you know it's um, you know it's been it's been a huge impact in in our business you know and um, and and you know you've got to kind of go do you put your business first or do you put your people first and you know we we put our people first. Um, in terms of doing that, but um, yeah, huge challenge, absolutely a massive impact um, in terms of the business right across the uh, the spectrum. So, and um, looking back over sort of how you've adapted to this new reality, is there anything you'd say that you've learned in your leadership capacity from all of this and can take that forward as a positive? Well, luckily, um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, uh, my timing was quite good. I, I, you know, I, I decided to to build a stronger kind of management team as the organisation grows. One of the, you know, I, I did a speech last year to the, the kind of a local community in terms of business people, and and one of those questions is what makes um, what makes a, a company successful. And one of the things that stood out for me when when I kind of did that, when when I looked at it and researched it, well, what is a successful company? And one of the things or the criteria, if you like is a company that is independent of its owners you know, that can survive. And, that, and I kind of took that at heart and, and I've been building on that and, and, and I'd, I'd implemented a, a really kind of, you know, strong kind of management team around me. And and that was very fortuitous because kind of when that hit and everybody's skills were able to bear from, you know, health and safety to risk management to HR to to all of these things, you know, as a, as a team, we were able to kind of formulate what we can do, what we needed to do. And there's no way on earth that I could have done that by myself. 
Um, and, and nobody should kind of do that by yourself either. So you know, having that kind of strong kind of management team around you in terms of what you need to do to try to, you know, A, first of all, look after your people. More than, most important because, you know, at the end of the day, no matter what happens as a business, we need our people back, health and safety and, and alive and, and all of that rest in order to continue the business. Because we will get through this. The government will get through it. The country will get through it. But you need to be in a good position, hopefully, when, when, when that hits. So that was absolutely vital um, in terms of doing that. But it was also very interesting because our company had uh, diversified. You know, we no longer kind of you know, relied on our on our e-commerce business. That was just mm-hmm. one faction. We we'd expanded, you know, over over a number of years into fulfillment and logistics. Um, and and when you looked at your, your your business, when you know it was you know cut across three because we launched a kind of a little distribution arm as well. So. That the, the impact that COVID was having, and even then, to you know, because we literally had to shut down our operations, um, you know, for for several weeks in order to go, you know, to draw everything back in, to really focus on what we needed to do to survive and move on, and then to be able to go, well, hey, what what is it? What is going to be our main focus? Because there was no way with you know all the distancing rules and everything else that 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 diversity that we had done could no longer function. So our e-commerce business, you know, was, was kind of um, going to be a major impact because a lot of our stuff was international selling and we had so many things like surcharges on international mail. It just was going through the roof and the uncertainty of the, of the post, um, you know, added to that. Whereas our fulfillment business, we weren't losing business. It was just becoming backlogged because we did project kind of business. So, so we had to focus. Say, well, we we can't operate in our in our usual diverse way. We've actually got to, you know, with social distancing and 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 sort of the risk and assessment and the safety of our staff. We had to focus on what was going to be our core business that we could continue with and continue with well and successfully, which actually our fulfillment business, you know, became a, a, a better option than our e-com business because of the uncertainty with the International Post. So actually having a clear strategy in terms of where your 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 main profit and your main focus is going to come from um, was, was, was key in terms of how we could then get back in and recover and, and start operating again. So that was absolutely crucial. But having that having that management team around you so that they can share that burden and, and utilizing everybody's skills in the, in the company was absolutely crucial in terms of being able to navigate your way for, forward. So definitely. It leads very nicely onto a quote from Nelson Mandela, actually, that he once said you should surround yourself with people who are better than you. And I think that's very, very good advice for anybody in business or even looking to start a business. Surround yourself with good and positive people because leadership is about the collective as well as an individual leader. You need good people around you. And it's shown during this period as as to how people have stood up during a time of adversity, made themselves be counted and really sort of kept things ticking over. Without a shadow of a doubt, my ethos is to enable people to do their job as, to their best ability, to allow them to grow, and to allow them to have a say in 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 in, in helping the company go forward. Because a majority of people are actually passionate about the business that they're in, <laughs> and they they want to succeed and they want the company to succeed, and enable them to try to do that. Yeah, um, definitely is uh, is a way forward for me. Anyway, so. 
For sure. And um, thinking about sort of um, the uh, the future as well, um, there's been a lot of talk about our working practices and what the pandemic is going to do uh, to change industry going forward. Even when COVID-19 is ultimately no longer an issue, can you see us reverting to what we knew as normality before? Or do you think there will be wholesale change for some time to come in the sense that people will be working from home more on a personal basis? Companies will be weighing up what to do with their premises. And indeed we'll be thinking more about sort of sustainability going forward uh, that's a lot of um, lot of questions in, in, into one there as well and and I wish I had a crystal ball you know I think um, I think I think there will most certainly be um, a gravitas to, 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 to that and I think the, that home working environment as long as it can be monitored and and, and, um, and so forth will, will definitely be um, more of a way forward because obviously the, the cost savings in terms of being able to have to expand your offices etc cetera, etc cetera. I think my 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 worry is in terms of um, the gravitas towards having to, to basically make money, um, you know, in terms of being able to to maximise your space and your people, and um, and I, I worry that a lot of people might well gravitas back to the norm that this might well be forgotten. I don't think it will, but that would be that would be a concern um, in terms of doing that because ultimately, you know, as a business, you, you need to look after your people, but you obviously need to be able to make money and you need to be able to pay people's wages and need to pay the rent and everything as well. So, so there's a balance to be found there between doing that. But I certainly hope that, um, I think this has been a wake-up call you know, um, hopefully for the world in terms of, you know, what's important and, you know, sustainability is is going to be, you know, on everybody's um, buzzword. It, it needs to happen because, you know, look, look what's around the corner, you know, and this is just a, a, a deadly disease that, um, but it could be a lot worse, you know, um, <laughs> you know, and, and we're, we're coping just about with this what happens if something even worse than this comes along, you know? So I think we need to be a lot more robust going forward for certain. And also for those younger generations of listeners that might be listening to this and are currently downhearted by the current situation and what it means for the economy and their employment prospects, as somebody who has done very well in business such as yourself, what message would you give them to really sort of pick their heads up and get them on the road to success? Well, I think of that um, all relies around the government. I know, like, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm not a fan of some, you know, particularly around Brexit stuff in terms of what they've done. But I think that um, everybody would be up for there for for, for, for criticising, you know, in terms of you know the nuances of maybe some of the decision making. But in terms of big brushstrokes, I don't think they could have done much more and are doing much more than they're doing to help support, mm. you know, the the economy and businesses i mean you know without without a absolute undoubted if they'd not put the measures in place you know that they put in in terms of the uh, furlong scheme and grants and everywhere else was no way we would have survived absolutely no way so you know the the the, the things that they put into into place to um, to support us you know in terms of government generally speaking across the across the board have been incredibly positive and and are looking to try and you know support business across the way and the same thing goes for you know the young people initiatives and we're we're potentially looking at apprentices and so forth as well. You know, the government recognises, um, you know, um, that, that what needs to be done and they are putting in grants and they're putting in, you know, um, 
uh, things into place to incentivize businesses to um, uh, to be able to grow. And and without a shadow of a doubt, is that 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 you know, companies need you know um, young people. They need that. They need ideas. They need the growth to come in. Um, and so you know, overall, the, the economy will will recover. So and and we will get back to normal. So it's, I think it's going to be short termism. So don't don't look at this as a long term thing. Um, but the government are putting in measures to incentivize people to to help to bring young people into into their businesses, and that's all that can be really done um, from that perspective at this moment in time. I wish I had a a, a golden wanded answer to that question, mm-hmm. but. You know, well, I'm seeing that, and and us as a company, most certainly, you know, we've put our head above the parapet and go, oh, hold on a minute, you know, if an opportunity comes along, then uh, uh, you know, within our, our organisation that would suit that, the monetary incentive that the government put in place makes that more of an incentive to kind of go down that route. So, so you know, I think um, I think they're doing what they can to try and incentivise um, you know companies to look at, um, at the younger generation and get those into the business. For certain, and um, there's been a lot made of the uh, the government's leadership throughout this entire crisis, um, as we've all seen, but they have done some very, very positive things to help safeguard business. You mentioned the furlough scheme is one thing. There are plenty of other initiatives um, along the way as well. But just given all of the criticism that is there within, of course, the uh, the media, do you think that leadership in general is as celebrated as much as it should be in the UK? I, I would say it's a probably about a fifty-fifty thing here. I think that um, it's the job of the media to to highlight and and you know and um, criticise and and because it makes good news, doesn't it, in terms of doing that. And and everybody can say, well, they should have done this, but you know, unless you're in that situation you yourself, this is unique. This has never happened before. Could they have learnt lessons? Could they have locked down earlier? Possibly. You know, um, you know, we've always said that um, that um, anxiety and um, anxiousness and 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 everything else could be just a bigger killer mm. than this disease. You know, if if you know people are locked in too long, it's a it's a really hard. I I look at it and go like, wow. You know, I, I when we were first a business and I was hitting, I was going, my God, it's the end of my company. You know, it's the end of my business. And yet, you know, when when they announced the furlough scheme and they announced all these things, I went, oh my God, sorry, it's just a is this a conservative government or is it a Labour government? You know, <laughs> yeah, because it very felt very much like that. So I think the response has been has been pretty good. Yes, there are some things that I would criticise the, um, the, the 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 initial loan scheme, rather the CGRS scheme was was pretty ill thought of. I think in terms of its execution, it took too long, um, and I think it didn't really help the companies that really need it. But then they come up with the um, the business interruption loan, which was you know far better easy to access and, and and actually probably could tick a lot of boxes. So, but but equally, you know, right down the chain, the management chain in terms of local grants and local support and the the um, you know the um, delay in having to pay your VAT and your rates and all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of other support around you, which is which was was an effect you know, giving you a loan um, to that effect as well. So you know there was. It wasn't just that. It was, you know, it was right down the chain that they were able to give support. And, and I can honestly say that for us, it allowed us to survive and allowed us to get back into work and it allowed us to move on. So, but yeah. 
Just goes to show, doesn't it, that leadership is full of learning curves, even when you are running a country um, in a sense. And I would like to sort of address the uh, the future and what might be coming on the horizon now, just before we do wrap things up, because I'm conscious that we are short of time on the, today's show, sure. Nigel. Um, we no know problem, that for the next few months, at least, the new normal is going to be here to stay, particularly given the Prime Minister's recent announcement. But sure. over the course of that, um, so this sort of next year, what is it at Games Quest that you're really hoping to achieve as a business and where do you see yourselves in a year's time well for us we've got too far because we're an international um postal company that we ship goods all over the world brexit is is huge for us you know our, our you know um, eu vat um you know shipping into the eu VAT for VAT friendly uh which, which and is pretty crucial to our business so and and it really does frustrate me the the, the government's been very head on uh, you know um in terms of making this happen in january 2021 in terms of the new VAT reforms and import duties and yet the eu have made sense of saying well look, let's delay this till july 2021 and I quite support the government in terms of this process but why the hell are they not um, delaying this with with all of what's gone on with COVID and, and the limited resources everybody has and the focus in terms of getting the business going so they not take that sensible approach sorry I have to get that off my chest <laughs> in terms of doing that but um, for us is now navigating our way through and, and hopefully that the um, the uh, uh, pandemic doesn't come back in a massive way and that we can kind of manage you know everything that we have now and, and get through the Brexit and get through you know the trials and tribulations that we have but hopefully you know in a year's time you know we're a growing organisation in our fulfilment side of our business we can see a gradual increase and in return to the e-commerce business um, but seeing that that goes, the, the whole new VAT regulations and changes for within the EU and the UK is, is, is our next big challenge, you know. And I just wish that they, we could have a bit more breathing space getting over COVID, and then to try and tackle that is um, is probably our our biggest kind of challenge over the next kind of twelve months, really. So, um, but you know, we are growing as an organisation within within that uh, that fulfilment sector. So we we hopefully will keep on growing that business. So. Yeah, let's certainly uh, hope so. And it is going to be uh, something that more light will be shed on very shortly, hopefully. Of course, the uh, the Prime Minister and Chief Negotiator for the EU, Michel Barnier, did put a mid-October timeline on the negotiation. So we should know very shortly whether there will be a uh, trade deal in place. Absolutely. And um, let's hope that business isn't going to have to deal with the double whammy of getting over a covid fuel winter and also over a no-deal Brexit scenario. Um, just, given, just given how crucial, um, of course, this next few months is going, to be in the scale of um, your ambitions um, providing everything goes well Nigel I actually think it would be wonderful just given how enlightening it's been having you with us today to share your views I think it would be fantastic to catch up and have you back on our show at some point in the next year when we can reassess exactly what has happened and just see what direction the business is going in then No it'd definitely be a pleasure Scott anytime I think it would be wonderful, especially for the listeners um, as well, who um, will have been tuning into this. It would be fantastic to uh, revisit this uh, going forward. Yeah, no, I, I, I hope I'm around. I should be. I think we will be. Let's keep off. No, positive. Crossing. Good leadership positive. going forward. Exactly, exactly <laughs> right. Positivity is um, infectious and it is what we need at the moment. It's, indeed, been, it's indeed. been such a pleasure, Nigel, welcoming you onto the uh, show today. And um, most importantly, until we do um, hopefully speak again, do take care and stay safe with all that's still going on. Indeed, and everybody out there too. I do want to reiterate that message for a moment to every single one of the listeners tuning in today. Please do continue to be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. It was a pleasure to welcome GamesQuest CEO Nigel Matthews onto today's programme. And shortly 
um, coming up on the uh, the show, we're going to be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Now, during his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But he remains most renowned, of course, for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup. That came after his treble in England's 4-2 triumph over West Germany at the Old Wembley Stadium, which came 54 long years years ago now. So Jeff will be coming on to reflect on some of the leadership highlights of his career, as well as leaving a message of thanks for our wonderful NHS. So Jeff will be joining us very shortly. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may it last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and goodness me, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I went up wanting to bury it, and I'll be absolutely. I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago, and it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements about the team being successful. Whether I got two or three, in one sense, is. is uh, wouldn't say material but it's about the team winning it's all about the team Mm. exactly consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership which is of course what the leaders council is all about recognizing that and promoting that for the future but if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the, 
parts and he was waving as a whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms indicating quite clearly of course that the game was nearly finished so when I got to the edge of the box I'm, I now think of the game is nearly I'm thinking if the game's nearly finished I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left but I'm thinking if it goes beyond the, beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hand still Kowski, the German keeper by that time surely the game's got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it, and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time, not so much about... Uh, but certainly what I was going to do, which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours. And it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope, taking a punt, can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that... that that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks, uh, of making it, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life, you've, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's, where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up with enough, enough funding for it and, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital in uh, important is says to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on and and also into what was also for me fantastic all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same you you union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were, remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest viewing, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, 
through this pandemic, and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent. And every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective. Uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS. Fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coincidence and the fortunate in your life to be at the time when I was physically at my my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be a rat, to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, he is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined move from one to the other. Uh, how how can you possibly be as as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who then managed from a discipline point of view because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, people in my life in my in my football life and I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their um, of course their peak but just of course just but just as much as you can learn from of course coaches that do get the best out of players you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well because that experience can ultimately mold you as a person can't it Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. 
but I think um, you you can learn if you're sensible enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes, but it's learning. It's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life uh, and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. Mm, completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and froing between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When, in, in those uh, medieval days, you, there were, you weren't football pitches or places very rarely where you could play. You, um, in our road in Greenways, it was called in Chelmsford, we, that three or four lads, <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, not a big long road, um, with a round, with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway, A, because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B, because there weren't as many cars, no, we didn't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the str- across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two-foot-wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted, that was the goal. And so it's a three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in uh, fl- flying, you know, and gl- making balsa wood gliders. And uh, nice guy, but just didn't, didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they... Um, took us to court and uh, we actually got fined this is absolutely true we got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden astounding when you think about it isn't it mm. and when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street and uh, we were actually but that that happens that happens you'll, you'll hear stories we see stories of neighbours falling out over different things you see those those stories every day but that was certainly a true story absolutely absolutely true and during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the, the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under Line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was... Pr- probably I was the eldest of three when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden 
and women moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford, and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot. And so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two footed, and I was maybe not as two footed as. Bobby Charlton, even Jack Charlton, his brother, didn't know which was his best foot. He, he was fantastic. But I was pretty pretty um, um, two-footed. And a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, And what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name called Jock Redfern. Unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about as I... I kind of put it between the two sports which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development either as a cricketer or either as a footballer and it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me I was a midfield player then or centre half at school um, he uh, said I'm going to try you up front he put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically and I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about but between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game for me. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, 
of course not related to your own career is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area and one goalkeeper that you played with not just for England but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career was Gordon Banks. I have to confess as a boyhood Port Vale supporter I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there and I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well but what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just sitting balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely, lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met, sometime he'd, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, uh, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of, and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banksy is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banksy was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that has uh, come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Wadding saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, 
in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight, and uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to to stay with me. What he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across the, across, but not hit the best because I think he was certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould, mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, he was a, a big help to uh, getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in, in America, it was the early days of... Um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at, at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham that we it was a great time at the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club that I was. I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge. And I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I've made very little contributions to that success that I've had. So, um, yes, it, uh, the, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never thought of long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters. And my wife, thank you, was uh, pregnant with her daughter over there so that was that was a good time it's completely different Ireland was just a just a I always joke about Ireland I was there for about I think a month I think it was and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England new kitchen <laughs> So it certainly went really well I suppose in the waning days of um, your career um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after the finish playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke when people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And I always jokingly say you only start being called a legend when you're over 70. 
and I think the, the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever, it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not not certainly, um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management on management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alf Ramsey, which I've taken into my, my business life and even my you know, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person. Didn't want to be part of of the group. So that that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice, yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.